This is BMO Smarter Investing for February 2023. Join top BMO economists Douglas Porter, Sal Gucieri, and Jennifer Lee for trends and forecasts across the economic landscape so you can make more thoughtful investment decisions. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. I'm Sal Gucieri, and joining me is Michael Gregory, Deputy Chief Economist, to discuss one of the main reasons the economy might well avoid a recession this year, or at least face a very mild one. That's the enormous amount of liquidity pumped into the economy to fight the pandemic, much of which was saved by households and is still parked in bank accounts. But what's good for the economy may not be so great for central banks trying to wrestle inflation to the ground. Michael, let's start with the U.S. situation. Can you discuss how much excess liquidity is sloshing around its uh, financial system? Sure. Well, something to keep in mind here is that the amount of support that, say, the U.S. government and the Fed provided the economy versus the Canadian government and the Bank of Canada provide to the Canadian economy, particularly with respect to what went to businesses, on the U.S. side, there was a lot more. So a lot of that liquidity that we do see sloshing around, a big chunk of it is actually on the business side as well. That's something to keep in mind that's a little bit different than Canada. But we figure right now, if you look at the underlying trend in money supply growth. Can you talk about liquidity, what you're talking about, deposits and money funds, all very much part of the money supply. And we see that given the trend that was in place before the pandemic, we're currently sitting about three and a half trillion dollars above where that trend would apply right now. That is more than 13% of nominal GDP. So that's a pretty sizable amount of excess liquidity, just literally, as you said, Sal, just parked in bank deposits and money market mutual funds. Yeah, there's no doubt businesses are still sitting on a lot of excess cash and to some extent state governments as well. But American households have really racked up a lot of extra savings. Our estimate over $2 trillion by the fall of 2021. And up to that point, I mean, households were just socking away income at rates well above that pre-pandemic five-year norm of of nearly 8%. Now, as you know, they began tapping this cash reservoir, uh, the savoring rate did slide to near record lows below 3%. As a result, we we do think excess savings have shrunk somewhat, but only probably by a third or so. And there's probably still sitting close to $1.5 trillion. That's a substantial 9% of after-tax income. Uh, And as you know, most of it appears to be sitting uh, in bank deposits or money market funds, so a sizable buffer to cushion uh, any headwind. Michael, how about Canada? Uh, We know it also has a substantial amount of excess liquidity. Can you discuss its uh, situation? Sure. Well, as I mentioned before, because businesses did not get as much support as they did uh, south of the border, direct support. So the amount of excess liquidity is not as large as a share of the economy. We reckon it's about a, a roughly 11% of normal GDP, which quite frankly is still topping $300 billion, which is a huge amount of money. And uh, interestingly, in Canada's case, unlike the U.S., where not only the amount of excess liquidity relative to the trend began to, to narrow, as it is on both sides of the border, it has yet to actually start falling in absolute terms in Canada. And I think that reflects a very interesting phenomenon that's going on where a lot of this money now is increasingly being parked in fixed term deposits, which may not be a store of uh, potential spending power as the amounts that would be, say, socked away in either demand or notice deposits. So, by the way, those are falling 
in Canada in absolute terms. So there's a lot of liquidity there, but it is starting to fall relative to its trend. Yeah, and uh, probably more so than in the U.S. It's it's probably households that really did rack up the bulk of those savings. I mean, during the shutdowns in 2020, uh, Canadian households were, were saving at a rate of almost one quarter of their disposable income, which is a record amount. Now, they have reduced that savings rate to about 6% now, but it's still uh, well above uh, that pre-COVID five-year norm of, of 2% or so. So it means households are still acquiring excess savings to some extent, and we estimate well over $300 billion for a massive 23% of disposable income. Now, even if you allow for a higher normal saving rate than what we saw during the five years before the pandemic, say closer to 8% as per the long-run mean, some excess savings would persist for quite some time in Canada, probably at least six years or so. And uh, we know a lot of those excess savings still parked in bank deposits. But as you mentioned, a good share seems to be going now towards uh, term deposits or other types of of investments as opposed to uh, supporting consumption. Michael, can you explain how uh, the excess liquidity impedes the central bank's ability to control inflation? Sure. Well, there's an old adage out there, uh, Sal, and it, and it says that the cure for higher prices is higher prices. The notion being that uh, higher inflation erodes purchasing power and that dampens demand relative supply and that eventually solves or at least eases some of the inflation pressures. But if you have a means by which you can keep paying higher prices for longer, because you've got a stash of cash sitting off to the sidelines. So in the face of higher inflation, you keep spending money because you can, because you've got the liquidity to support it. In the face of higher interest rates, say higher borrowing costs for a new vehicle, but because you have the liquidity uh, sitting in a bank account, you still buy that car. So in effect, all of this liquidity, all of this excess savings does act as a bit of a counter to what both the Bank of Canada and the Fed is trying to do in terms of slowing the economy down, slowing spending down through higher interest rates, and hopefully bringing inflation down. So it actually is, uh, while it's a good thing for making the a potential downturn milder than it otherwise would be, it does make inflation potentially a little more stubborn than it otherwise would be. Yeah, I can't agree more. I mean, central banks have been trying for almost a year now to cool down demand, to cool off the hot labor market and, and inflation, but they're certainly not getting much help from these excess savings. I mean, basically what those extra savings are doing is smoothing spending in the face of whatever shocks we're seeing or households are facing, and they have faced you know, wealth shocks and interest rate shocks for the past year now. So basically, those savings are adding resilience to the economy. In the U.S., we estimate households have drawn down about 3% of nominal GDP worth of savings, about one-third of their total. So that's providing a pretty solid backstop to spending in the face of those headwinds, high inflation, rising loan costs. Even at current rates of depletion, uh, we, we think excess savings could shrink by another one-third or so of the original amount. But Again, that would probably support another 3% worth of nominal GDP through this year. So it's a considerable amount of, of spending support for the economy. And Canadian households, as you mentioned, probably are not drawing down their extra savings as much to support spending as, as for other reasons and maybe investment purposes. But 
still they're because they probably haven't dipped too much into those extra savings to support spending there's still a sizable pot available to support the economy and you know in the face of these these headwinds so i guess central banks are going to have to wrestle with that possibility that the economy may just show more resilience perhaps as we're seeing already than it would desire in this period of of trying to wrestle down inflation Michael, central banks uh, long ago moved away from targeting the money supply to control inflation to targeting inflation itself. But is there any value in what uh, recent trends in the money aggregates are telling us? Yeah, great question, Sal. It's true that there was a time, and as professional economists, both you and I, we would actually waited with bated breath when the central banks would release their new targets for money supply growth. And we would track money supply on a weekly and monthly basis to see how it was going and whether you know central banks would have to tighten up or not. And I do think they moved away from that, as you mentioned. And I think uh, former Bank of Canada Governor Gerald Bowie said it best, and it became a standard, I think, for the global central banking community is that we didn't abandon monetary targeting. The monetary targets abandoned us. In other words, there was so much innovation going on both in the banking system and the financial markets that that there was no longer a very clear link, even over the long haul, between money supply growth and things like either inflation or, or nominal GDP growth. That said, there is still information in sort of in money and credit growth. And we just have to take a look at the kind of credit growth we're seeing, say, that had supported a lot of the housing activity we saw in Canada until very recently. And that very rapid credit growth was tied very much also to uh, rapid home price appreciation. So there are links between sort of credit money supply growth and inflation. And particularly we're in a period now with uh, excess demand uh, really driving the inflation process to the extent money supply deposits and money market mutual funds deposits and money market mutual funds are a store of future spending power. It does provide some information if, if only on the risks towards the, uh, uh, the inflation outlook. Yeah, and I guess central banks can take some comfort that uh, when you look at the monetary aggregates, they're they're barely growing now. In some cases, they're falling. And so not a perfect correlation with inflation, but I think it's telling them that to some extent, inflation should cool down given the slower rate of, of money growth. Now, I guess along with the money supply, central banks will also be mindful of the unequal distribution of excess savings and, and that their impact on the economy. You know, in the U.S., bank deposits uh, held by middle and upper upper income households did rise fairly sharply in the pandemic and remain high to this day. But in contrast, it's d- deposits held by the lower income quintile, especially the, the the two lowest income groups. They've largely tracked the rising trend that was in place prior to the pandemic, and it appears that most of those excess funds now have been used to either satisfy pent up demand or just cover the rising cost of necessities, food, fuel, and shelter. So American households may have substantial buffer left to cushion the expected downturn, but I think central bankers will be mindful that a lot of those savings now are parked with households that have a rather lower propensity to spend that money compared to uh, lower income groups. So we may not see quite the same cushioning effect for the economy as was the case in, in, in the past year. And for Canada, we know, um, you know the rising cost of necessities has taken a pretty severe toll on the ability of lower income 
earners to save. Uh, Stats Canada estimates that uh, net savings actually shrank over the last couple of years for the um, the bottom 40% of income earners. In sharp contrast, still sizable increases for the top two income quintiles. So, you know, it's it's pretty clear that lower income households will not be using much savings at all to support their spending. So in some ways, I guess central bankers will get some inflation relief on that front because those households will have to push back against higher prices and that will perhaps help restore price stability. Michael, can you provide some final thoughts on our economic outlook and, and the risks to it? Sure thing. Well, you know, we've seen the, the central banks on both sides of the border increase interest rates quite sharply. As we know, the Bank of Canada is on a conditional pause right now. The Fed has signaled they likely have a couple more rate hikes at least up their sleeve. But, uh, you know, we are now beginning to see the impacts of those higher interest rates uh, beginning to ripple through the economy. Now, keep in mind that those first initial moves occurred back in last March. And the meaty ones began to follow soon after that. So we're now going into the period where we were going to start to see the lion's share of that impact on the economy. So while we worry about sort of lingering sort of momentum in the economy, which quite frankly may reflect uh, relatively mild weather in many parts of North America, you know, we do think that we're still headed to a period where a very aggressive monetary tightening, which, by the way, has been supplemented by quantitative tightening. Both the Bank of Canada and the Fed are allowing their balance sheets to shrink and indirectly contributing to even lower liquidity down the road. And we do think as we head into the second and third quarters of this year that we'll likely get a definite sort of downturn in the economy. But we still think it's going to be mild by historical standards simply because of what we've been talking about today, those excess savings and additional liquidity. Plus, we still have a lot of sort of pent-up demand, so-called revenge spending there. And I think a very important factor which makes this cycle a little bit different than others is that we're going into this potential downturn with still literally labor shortages and a very strong demand for labor relative to available supply. So we don't think we're going to get a wholesale leap in the unemployment rate or joblessness that would normally deepen any economic downturn. So there are some silver linings, despite the fact that we suspect there's going to be some speed bumps for the economy ahead. Yeah, and those uh, speed bumps, I think, are shared pretty equally between the Canadian and U.S. economies. I mean, we always get the question, why do you expect Canada's economy to weaken as much as the U.S. economy when Canadian interest rates don't seem to be rising as fast as in the U.S.? Well, and our comeback is that, well, there's probably a good reason why Canadian households are now saving more than American families, and that's because they just need to service a, a larger debt burden. You know, there's one third of Canadian households with a mortgage, and many right now are, are likely setting aside extra funds to cover those thousands of dollars of additional annual payments at, at renewal time. And that's a concern most U.S. mortgage holders with long fixed rate terms don't really have to worry about. So, um, you know, despite interest rates not going up as much in Canada as in the U.S. And perhaps despite the fact Canadian households may have, be sitting on higher excess savings than American households, they're also likely to allocate more of those savings to uh, just simply repaying or, or servicing debt as opposed to um, use for spending, which support the economy. So I guess we can wrap up. I'll just say uh, thanks a lot, Michael. I mean, 
just to recap, a large reservoir of household savings and liquidity in the financial system should backstop spending for another year in the U.S., perhaps even longer in Canada, and shield our economies from uh, the full effects of high interest rates. While this firepower is more likely to delay than avert a mild downturn, it could help the economy resume growth by uh, next year. Unfortunately, those savings, that savings buffer could also act as a double-edged sword if it sustains inflation and leads to even higher interest rates, both in the U.S. and Canada. So it really does all come down to how inflation behaves this year. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to BMO Smarter Investing, a podcast brought to you by BMO Investor Line. We are here to empower Canadians to invest smarter. For more information on how you can start investing today, visit bmo.com slash online investing. And be sure to subscribe to this show to get the latest episodes wherever you listen to podcasts.